In God's providence, we're going to be uh, postponing our series on passages of Scripture that have been twisted and taken out of context, and so our Scripture reading is also changed today, and I'll be reading a very familiar passage of Scripture, probably many people's favorite passage of Scripture out of Psalm chapter 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, I got the news along with many of you last night that our friend Michael Copley had taken his own life. It was around 16 months ago that Michael came among us, a good friend of Tim Klein's from college. Tim was reaching out to Michael and ministering to him as he was in a deeply dark and depressed place. But as he came among us, Tim was not the only one. Tim and Elizabeth were not the only one who developed an affection for Michael and love for Michael and a desire to minister to Michael and help Michael. Ryan and Julie Hobson were among the first to reach out to him and offered him their home, and Michael moved into them, moved in with them for a long period of time. Pastor Ted reached out and offered literally hundreds of hours of counsel to Michael as they worked together week in and week out and studied together and prayed together. Justin and Rebecca Klein, as has already been mentioned, developed a really close friendship with Michael as well. And so there were, and there were many among you, no doubt, in this church who have reached out to Michael and known him and have talked to him from time to time. He wrote a note. It was a very gracious, thankful, no casting of blame letter, which was an expression both of his profound sickness and his hope in Christ. The following is an excerpt from that letter. I'm ending my life because I'm sick. Whether anyone wants to believe in mental illness or not, it's very serious and I'm very sick. Until you've lived inside my head, you simply don't understand how truly sick I am. I'm tired. I'm tired of thinking the things I do, acting the way I do, saying the things I say. I hate myself. I'm in constant pain from the constant mental agony that I deal with. I just honestly don't see a way out. My entire life will be overshadowed by all my scarlet letters. I could go on for pages and pages about all the problems I foresee, 
but my life is ruined, and I ruined it. In that same letter, Michael writes the following. Please know this. I believe in God. I believe Jesus Christ is my Savior. I do believe Jesus died on the cross for all of my sins, including this one, no matter how grievous it is. I believe I've been saved and that I'll meet Jesus after I've died, even though I killed myself. I understand that killing myself shows an utter lack of faith and trust in Christ. It might show that I was, in fact, never saved. I do not believe that, as that is not what is in my heart or mind, but I could be wrong. I believe in Christ, have trusted in him for many months, and I trust in him that he died even for my terrible sin of taking my own life. And when you read a letter like that as a pastor, how do you make sense of that? How do you as a church make sense of that? That on the one hand, you can have these two completely contradictory statements. A life and a feeling of utter and complete hopelessness. And yet a confidence that in Christ all is well. Can you trust Christ and be suicidal? He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew it was a possibility that it was, reve- that it was going to be a revelation of his profound unbelief. He knew that he might go to hell, but he was confident that he wouldn't because of his trust in Christ alone. He read articles. He studied the Bible. He met with people for months. He knew the gospel and trusted it. Was he using mercy as a loophole? It's these sort of questions that come flooding to our minds when we have to wrestle with the very, very, very difficult subject of suicide. And so this morning, I want us to tread carefully but faithfully through God's word as I, as one of your pastors, try to bring some understanding and comfort to us as a people in the wake of this tragedy. And here's the first thing I want to talk about, and that is sadness and the life of a Christian. Here's just the facts from the Bible. The Christian life is not an easy life. And saints, profess saints can sometimes feel so bad that they want to die. Numbers chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, Moses says the following, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Moses was under tremendous pressure from the people to take him back to e- to take them back to Egypt and they were very unhappy with his leadership and God himself had sent fire against the people and Moses came to the point where he asked God to take his life because he could not bear the thought of seeing his wretchedness this is Moses another godly man Elijah had just endured the incredible difficulty of by himself opposing 400 priests of the idol Baal 
at Mount Carmel and God vindicated his faith. And if you remember, he ran for miles with great joy in front of the king's chariot after God had demonstrated that he was the one true God. But then he heard that the king's wife Jezebel was after him to kill him. And in his fear and exhaustion, he went into the wilderness, sat down under a broom tree and said in 1 Kings 19.4, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. The prophet Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, who was no doubt one of the most selfish of all of God's prophets, who displayed an unbelievably sinful attitude toward those whom God would desire to show mercy in the pagan city of Nineveh. And he was irritated with God on that fact. And he said the following, when the sun, the book of Jonah chapter four, verse eight says the following, when the sun rose and God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Now, these are four men or three men, rather Moses, Elijah, and Jonah that the Bible holds up in many ways as examples And we think of them as pillars in the Bible. And yet these are men that struggled with profound sadness and depression to the point that they wanted their lives taken away. And this just speaks of the fact that the fall, all the effects of the fall do not get reversed or removed when a person becomes a Christian. And sometimes we don't fully appreciate the effects of the fall on the human mind. We know it affects the heart. We know it affects the emotions. We know it affects faith and trust. And, but it also has profound effects on the mind. Here's what Brian Chapel says about that. The corruption of our entire nature includes our physical world and the world of our emotions and thoughts. We damage ourselves and others if we do not consider the full extent of this entirely corrupted nature. Disease may come not only to our bodies as a consequence of our fallen world. Disease may come to our minds as well, and sometimes it does. As Christians, this aspect of fallen creation most challenges us because we want to believe that our minds, where affirmations of faith dwell, are somehow beyond the reach of this world's corruption. Yet the corruption of our entire nature means that the effects of the fall are intertwined around every dimension of our being, physical, mental, and spiritual. Now that is not to say or excuse in any way what Michael has done. Michael has committed a grievous sin, a sin which he was well aware of, as you heard. He knew that what he was doing was disobedience to God's command to not murder. Suicide is self-murder. And it's disobedience to God's command to not murder. It's also a presumption upon God's rights to give and take life. In the Psalms, chapter 31 Verse 15, there is a very striking statement that reminds us that it's the Lord's prerogative 
to determine life. Psalm 31.15, where the psalmist simply says, My times are in your hands. And it is never our right to take what God alone says is in, his, is in his hands and put it in ours. That is, our life and our times. If, as Psalm 139 says, that all of, all of our days were ordained in the book before one of them came to be, that's God's book. That's not our book. We have no right to dispose of ourselves or others as we please. The Lord has sole rights over what he has made. And as Michael confessed and knew, it was a failure to trust God for the help he needed to survive and cope with a future that looked incredibly bleak and hopeless. And the Bible says that whatever is not from faith is sin. So none of us are going to have a problem with understanding that, I don't think, that we have firm biblical ground when we say that it's a sin to take your own life. But here's the difficult part. Sometimes faith can be so weak that we give way to grievous sin. Or to put it another way, those who are truly forgiven of their sin can give way temporarily to profound and deep temptation and fall into sin. And some of that sin is far more grievous than other sin. But surely you know the biblical evidence for this. Romans chapter 7 verse 15 where Paul describes the struggle with the remaining corruption in our lives. He writes, I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Philippians 3.12 reminds us that we are not yet perfect. Not that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Jesus reminded us repeatedly, especially in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, that we should not only pray for daily bread, but for daily forgiveness because we are profoundly corrupt and sinful when he said for us to forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Mike's desire to put an end to his pain was not wrong, but the way in which he did it was. But this does not mean that a saving relationship with Christ goes in or out of existence with the fall, a tragic fall of someone. When a believer yields to temptation... His faith in Christ may be weak and the enticements of sin and the power of Satan may get the upper hand and a great and tragic fall occurs. But is this the unpardonable sin? Is this the sin that is outside the scope of God's mercy? Ultimately, we don't know where Michael is. The Lord knows those who are his. But we don't have to know. But we can know this. And with this, I want to spend the most time as I seek to bring us some comfort from God's word. 
This much we do know. All of us die with sin still remaining in us. And all of us die with sin that is unrepented of. And sin that is unrepented of is not the ground for, dis- for elimination from the presence of God. Because the foundation for our salvation is not the level or degree of our faith and repentance. It's the source of the righteousness provided to us in Jesus Christ. It's, it's not our right living or right dying that gets us into God's presence. It is the righteousness of Christ alone that saves us. No amount of good works can earn salvation. And no amount of bad works disqualifies a person from salvation. A thief hung on a cross next to Jesus as he was dying. And his life was one total waste of sin and unbelief. And in that last moment, his eyes were opened and he threw himself on the mercy of King Jesus. When he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, with all of his sovereignty and all of his glory and all of his power, though shamed by the degradation of the cross, said, today you will be with me in paradise. In the 11th hour, a lifetime of sin and unbelief can be forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ. Because even if we are too weak to hang on to Christ, he is strong enough to hang on to us. Now, I know some of you will fear that if I do not shut the door of heaven for this particular sin, then I may open the door for others to consider doing what he did. I know that's a danger. But the greater danger is to portray our God as one who does not understand human weakness and who draws a line beyond which his love will not go. The God we need is the God that scripture displays. The one who loves you so much that he gave his son so that you need not fear that even your greatest failures will deny you entrance into his eternal kingdom and his heart. Love for this God will hold you to life more than any threat of hell from a God you wish to flee. And now I want us to open our Bibles to two passages of Scripture. And these will be somewhat strange passages of Scripture because they were passages of Scripture that I came across this week in my devotional reading. I want you to turn with me to 2 Kings, or sorry, not 2 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 15. 1 Kings chapter 15. Admittedly, this will be a very unusual place to take us, but I hope you'll see why in a moment. And in my meditation on the greatness and vastness of God's grace in regard to those who are sometimes identified as complete spiritual failures, I came across this amazing statement about a rather obscure character in scripture, Asa, the king of Judah. Now, Asa's life is talked about in 2 Kings 15, verses 8 through 24, and 2 Chronicles chapters 14 through 16. 
And Asa did some really good things as one of the kings of Israel. He removed some of the pagan idols from Israel and tried to restore the worship of the true God. But more space is given in the Bible to his failures because he didn't remove all of the idols. He entered into a treaty with a pagan king because he didn't trust God. He brutally oppressed God's people. And when he was afflicted with a disease in his feet, he refused to turn to God for help. He was a man of profound inconsistency. But do you know what the Bible says about Asa? Do you know the epitaph that God writes over his life? 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 14. Let's read it together. 1 Kings 15, verse 14. But the high places, that is the idolatrous places, were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And lest you think that's just a slip of a pen, listen to the summary of King David's life that's given just a few verses earlier. This David, who stole a man's wife and then killed her husband to cover up his sin. This David is described in this way. 1 Kings 15 verse 5. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Why do I read those two verses? I don't know all that we should conclude from these verses, but I can tell you this at the very least. God's grace is sovereign and it is very, very broad. When God assesses a life, his mercy is much broader than ours and can save and embrace even the most notorious of sinners. Each of you here, I should say most, if not some, some or most, in one way or another, sought to express your love to Michael. Whether it was a hello, whether it was a handshake, whether it was a good to see you, whether it was a counseling session where it was a a room in your house, whether it was a job opportunity. Many of you pointed him to Jesus Christ for his salvation and help, and you did it again and again. And on numerous occasions, we've witnessed it around the Lord's table and at various other places in informal conversations. If, you've, if some of you have been a part of those, you witness, might confess his faith in Christ. And now our focus must not be on the enduring quality of his profession, but on the broad mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ who saves. And we must not be uneasy about what could not be repaired in this life or communicated here. We must know that what could not be repaired or communicated here 
can be repaired and communicated there. I want to close with a, with a, a fairly long illustration, but I think it's a helpful one. And it's the story of William Cooper. Many of you are familiar with William Cooper. He's a famous hymn writer. You know his story. There were at times in his life, Cooper was almost inspired in his ability to write hymnody. He wrote such great hymns as there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Oh, for a closer walk with God. Here's a man who wrote such profound hymns about the glory of the gospel and longed to have a near, close fellowship with his Savior who struggled throughout his entire life to accept the fact that God's grace could never save a sinner like him. He was depressed much of his life. And what you may not know is that he actually tried to take his life on several occasions. Let me share with you a couple of those. At age 32, William Cooper became so depressed that he determined to take his own life. He ordered a horse-drawn cab to pick him up at his home and transport him to the London Bridge where he planned to jump to his death. It was a foggy night. The cabbie got lost and Cooper got frustrated. He told the man to stop, got out of the cab, paid his fare, and turned around to discover that he was right back at his own doorstep. He went inside, still bent on his evil intention. He drank poison, but it made him sick, and so he threw up. Then he determined to fall on a knife, but the knife blade broke. Finally, he made a crude attempt at hanging himself, but he was discovered unconscious yet still alive, and he was cut down. In the days that followed... As he contemplated these events, he wrote the following words. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. One of the greatest hymns on suffering was written by a man who had just tried to commit suicide four times. He was a very close friend of John Newton's. John Newton used to take him. He thought, he thought he was so bent on himself and so focused on himself that he thought the best thing that he could do 
was to give him opportunities to love and serve other people and get invested in other people's problems. And Tim and Elizabeth and Ryan and Julie and Pastor Ted weren't the only ones who thought that would be really great for Michael too. So Michael volunteered at Mentor Kids and gave his time and gave his heart in hopes that that would help. And for seasons it did. Very much like John Newton to his dear friend, William Cooper. But eventually, John Newton, whom you know as the author of Amazing Grace, took the fragile Cooper into the pastor's home. Newton could not convince Cooper that God's grace was sufficient to get him through whatever he was going through. To face his future without being paralyzed by fear and doubt. He couldn't get him to believe it. And in the last scene, as Newton stands at the bedside of William Cooper, trying to convince Cooper that God's grace will take him to heaven, in those final moments, Cooper wouldn't believe it. And he died. And John Newton paused for a time. And as it's recorded, he looked up to heaven and he said, See, Cooper, I told you so. I told you so. What could not be communicated or repaired here will be there. Now, let me close after that illustration. And I know I said I would close, but I have to leave us with a few things. First of all, we've talked about sadness. We've talked about sin. We've talked about salvation. Now let's talk about sobriety. Not sobriety as in not drinking alcohol and getting drunk, not that kind of sobriety. There's suicide has a way of sobering us and waking us up to the realities of life and death and heaven and hell and sin and Satan and all kinds of things. So how should we respond? And let me leave us with just a few things. First of all, we should weep. We should weep. We should weep that life is so broken and we are so fragile and that at any moment, any one of us can do ridiculous things, things that make no sense, things that baffle us. And we should weep over what our sin has done. Because we have a share in, even though we ourselves are not perhaps mentally ill as Mike was, we have a share in mental illness, the reality of mental illness. Because in Adam, we all sinned. And therefore, we have a part in the fact that such things exist in the world. And so we should weep and, and be broken over our sin and what our sin has done. And that should lead us to pray 
We should pray for comfort for those who are nearest to Michael, especially Tim and Elizabeth and Ryan and Julie and Pastor Ted and Justin and Rebecca and others in this church and his, and his extended family and friends. We should pray for them and support them in the days and months to come. We should also praise God because, as I've already said, neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even if Michael's faith was genuinely trusting in Jesus Christ, mixed with much fear and much doubt, if his faith was the side of a mustard seed was real, then the fact that he took his own life cannot and will not separate him from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grievous though it be. If his sins truly were forgiven, past, present, and future, then as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. But this also reminds us of our great need for, our, for a personal relationship with Christ ourselves. I know I'm speaking to the vast majority of you here this morning who hope in Christ, who trust in Christ, who are turning from sin, who are believing the gospel, who are walking for. But every, every week we have people in here that are not sure of where they stand with the Lord. And there are different reasons that they don't believe. Some are skeptical of the claims of Christianity. Others feel like they're unsavable or that they have to work really hard and accumulate a spiritual resume that they can present to God one day that has sufficient good deeds on it that God will pardon their sin and accept them into heaven. And I just want to tell you that's a fool's errand. And that if anything could encourage you to trust in Christ and to take your soul and its condition seriously... It would be an event like this where you recognize that there is no amount of good deeds that can get you into God's presence. And there is no amount of bad deeds that can keep you out of God's presence and that you would forsake all of your right doing that you think is right and your perceived righteousness. And that you would forsake all that and that you would trust in Christ alone. That's my prayer for you. That this sadness would be turned into joy. Finally, for us who are believers, let Michael's death remind us and spur us on to take the fight of faith seriously and not to coast with our minds. And what we dwell on and what we think about and what we meditate on and what we allow to govern and shape our reality. Because what you allow to govern and shape your reality shapes the decisions you make and the choices that you saw. Michael looked out at that future as irredeemable. He looked out at his future and he said... I don't see that getting fixed. 
And you know what? It might not have been. It might not have been. Christianity is not true because it works all the time the way we want it to work. So if he looks out at his life and he says, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand how it can be fixed. I mean, it's hopeless. Okay, it might be. You might never get married again. You, you may have troubles getting jobs and careers. You may have difficulties all along the way. But you have Christ. Therefore, at the end of the day, if you've got to walk through 50 more years of suffering, all that he takes away, Jesus will repay. But you've got to fight that at the faith level. And so this is a call for us to put on the full armor of God, which includes the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith. We've got to take all of that up every day of our lives and wage war against this world, which is trying to press us into its mold and to renew our minds with the word of truth and let the peace of Christ dwell in our hearts. And pray that God would help us to grasp how wide and deep and high and long is the love of Christ. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We've got to fight. We've got to work. And we have to help each other fight. One other thing. At the end of the day, we will all struggle with this thought. Could we not have done more? Was there not something else we could have done to help? Of course. <laughs> of course. And I'll just tell you this. You will find no peace in that line of thinking. And it's not honoring to God to go there. Because while there is always something more we can do. And there is always something else that could have been done. At the end of the day, we fall on the sovereignty of God. The God that is sovereign enough to take everything that we have done and work it for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I know Michael being dead still speaks in the sense that I can tell you from reading his letter that he doesn't want this congregation to feel an ounce of blame. He, in fact, wrote with affection and love for this church. He felt like he had failed miserably this church. That's not where we ultimately run. We ultimately run to the mercy, to the grace, to the loving kindness and the sovereignty of God that has ordained this mystery in our laps so that we might walk with him, trust in him, yield to him, submit to him and rejoice in him going forward. It's not easy 
These are not easy sermons to preach. These are not easy times to deal with as a church. It's never an easy thing as a pastor to, to find out when you have a certain sermon prepared to go in the can the next morning and you get news and you say, I can't just preach on that. I've got to, we, we have to deal with this. And to be thrust in to some of the most difficult, hardest sermons that anyone would ever have to preach and any congregation would ever have to hear. And so our hope going forward, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus is great. His mercy is rich and vast. And his love will not let us go. Let's pray. Father, we pause to acknowledge what has happened and what you have ordained. And while it is difficult to even understand this side of glory, we have to fall humbly at your feet before your word and confess that you know all things, that you have ordained all things, and that you do all things well. And that though we don't understand this side of life, we will one day, when we see you as you are. So we pray that you will give us grace to trust you, to walk forward in faith together, to give Lots of hugs, lots of encouragement, speak the truth, remind each other of what is, what is right and what is true, and trust you while we wait. Father, we thank you for Michael Copley's life. We thank you that he was made in your image. We thank you for his profession of trust in Christ. We thank you that we've gotten to know him and that he's been in our church these many, many months. We ask that you would extend great comfort to those who love him most deeply and knew him most closely and bore his burden most faithfully. We ask that you would reward them for their love and for their sacrifice and that they would know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And Lord, help us as a church um, to weep with those who weep and to bear one another's burdens. Father, sin is so irrational to look for rationality and that which is irrational is irrational. We're not going to find it. We have to once and definitively and repeatedly take our eyes off of what these finite brains, fallen finite brains, can understand and look directly 
at what we can understand by your grace, which is the promises that you have given us in Christ, which neither heaven nor earth can take away, and which you have sealed in the covenant of the blood of your own son, and you will never, ever, ever be unfaithful to. We thank you that such promises can in these days become a solid, solid, unbreakable rock and foundation for us as we move forward. So help us to take our stand on the promises of your word that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. And though heaven or earth may pass away, your word will never pass away. We ask all this in the name of the one who is the word of God, Jesus Christ. Amen.